Our first guest speaker needs very little introduction. Professor Stephen Cochran is the Head of International Affairs at Princeton University and has been working with us here for over nine years. Please welcome him now. Good morning, Stephen. Good, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colin. Great to have you with us as always, Stephen. My pleasure, of course. Now, we're going to have a very interactive session for this opening session where we'll have several investors uh, join us uh, at the latter part of this session. But for now, we're going to dive straight into your prepared remarks, the first 12 or 15 minutes. And your topic today is specifically whether China represents a risk or an opportunity or both for our asset owners. Over to you, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Colin. I really enjoyed yesterday's sessions including, as we were discussing before coming on air, the debate over inflation, which perhaps we'll re revisit. So um, in thinking about the portfolios going forward, it's obviously absolutely necessary to capture growth in Asia. The question is, what if China's current trajectory does not continue? Now, it could very well be that China continues on the path that it's been on for some time. But what if it doesn't? What happens to portfolios? What are the scenarios? Now, no one can predict the future. Uh, but as long-term investors, what should we be looking at? What type of trends, indicators, markers, data, events should focus our attention to understand whether China's trajectory continues, and if not, what are the implications for our portfolios? So I'm going to cover three pitfalls. Once again, China's trajectory could continue. We're not saying it won't. We're only imagining what we should look at in case it doesn't. The first pitfall is traditional, and it's the fundamental contradiction pitfall. Uh, for a long time, this was the consensus view, that China would hit a wall eventually because it lacked rule of law, it lacked secure property rights, freedom, transparency. But that didn't happen. China never hit that wall. The Communist Party remained in power, and China continued to grow. So the traditional pitfall, fundamental contradiction, is now a minority view. Very few people. It used to be a majority view by far. Now it's rarely heard. Nicholas Lardy, in The State Strikes Back, a recent book, has the best, most succinct uh, overview of this traditional view. That there's too many SOEs, not enough private sector, widening productivity gap. The SOE productivity is lower and declining. The private sector productivity is growing, but... There's too little investment there. And, and there's a lot of evidence. There's massive waste, overcapacity, huge losses, brutal consolidation. But here's the problem with that argument. Uh, state firms are seeking private sector partnerships in order to make them more efficient. And private firms are participating in industrial policy. And so does indicate there's market discipline in the state-owned model that China is ramping up. There are incentives for R&D, and there is market discipline. So uh, we, we shouldn't be naive. 
it would not be new for the Chinese leadership to accept slower growth on behalf of greater control. They would do that if it meant not losing control, but they may not have to. The Chinese economy has immense inefficiencies and immense dynamism at the same time. So the traditional pitfall, the fundamental contradiction, has itself contradictions in its arguments. Now the uh, second area, the new pitfalls. For example, corruption and speculative investment. Well, these are not so new. China has had corruption and speculative investment the whole time during the past 40 years, and it, these have not knocked it off its trajectory. What about climate obstacles? Many people are suggesting that China will hit a wall because of uh, climate challenges. Well, to the extent that the climate obstacles are understood as engineering and infrastructure challenges, the Chinese government has shown itself up to the task. So for example, moving away from coal, it's buying nuclear power plants from Russia right now at scale. So if there are uh, infrastructure engineering solutions to the climate challenge, then the climate obstacles might not be the place where China hits the wall. Uh, finally, under the, third, the new pitfalls, we have demography. People will tell you that the ratio of the working age population to the non-working population uh, began to decline already in 2010. Right? China's labor force expected to shrink by 47 million between 2010 and 2030. So demographic wall they might hit. What people forget is that under communist regimes, the retirement age is very, very low. And so there's a substantial population of people in China who are able-bodied but retired. If China had Japan's employment for the elder age cohorts, there would be no demographic shortfall whatsoever in the next 25, 30 years. There are enough people in China who are employable under retirement who could be brought into the workforce to make up for the predicted 47 million shortfall or shrinkage. And so demography is not destiny either. So if you look over the new pitfalls, it might not be the case that they will knock China off its trajectory. So this brings me to the third and biggest of the pitfalls, what is called in the academic jargon, the middle income trap. And here I highly recommend Scott Rosell and his brand new book, Invisible China. Rosell has spent 20 years doing research, field research in rural China, and he is pro-China. So he has the credibility to deliver hard truths about China's trajectory because he wants China to succeed. He acknowledges, like we all do, the great success that China has enjoyed, but he thinks that it can continue to enjoy success, but that there are many obstacles and the big pitfall is overcoming the middle income trap. So let me spend a little bit of time explaining what we mean by that. Uh, Middle-income countries today are 75% of the world's population and 62% of the world's poor. So while uh, uh, globalization has done wonders for low-income countries and high-income countries, middle-income countries have not done nearly as well. 
Many of them were middle-income countries, and they're still middle-income countries because they can't compete with the wages of the low-income countries, which are low, and of course they can't compete with the high uh, value, high added value economies of the high-income countries. So only of 101 middle-income countries in 1960, 13 became high-income by 2008. So 13 out of 101 jumped the barrier. That's not a high number. For example, Spain, Portugal, and Greece jumped from middle-income to high-income. But Spain, Portugal, and Greece had the secret of the EU, and the EU was absolutely critical for enabling that, just as we're seeing now with Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, right? So they've, they're exceptions to the rule, but they're exceptions explained by the EU, which of course China doesn't have access to. Another group are Ireland, Israel, your own Australia, New Zealand, all extremely successful societies that jumped from middle to high, all based largely on education. Very high investment in human capital as well as physical infrastructure. And then, of course, we have the big category, the biggest and most important, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, the Asian group. All of them had extremely high levels of education across the population when they were middle-income countries because of deliberate investment in education. Spain, Portugal, and Greece had lower human capital uh, when they were middle-income, but once again, they had the EU mechanism. China's human capital is more like Mexico in the 80s or Turkey. It's not like South Korea or Taiwan when those were middle-income countries. In fact, China has the lowest attainment, the lowest level of human capital of the entire middle-income world. China has 30% of the population with high school or above. No middle-income country below 50% has ever become a high-income country. And so China has 12.5% college-educated, among its population, and 12.5% times China's population is a huge number. But it has 70% of its population uneducated and unskilled for the most part, looking more, as I said, like Mexico than Taiwan or South Korea or Singapore or Hong Kong. Now, Mexico was called the next Taiwan in the 1980s. But of course, Mexico hit a wall. It's low human capital when factory jobs began to disappear meant that the growth story ended in Mexico. Investors pulled out. There were not enough skilled, highly educated workers to invest in higher value added in Mexico as wages rose. Now, China is not Mexico. Right? It's not part of uh, North America. It doesn't suffer from American consumption of narcotics the way Mexico does. So the, the comparison is, is not exact, of course. Uh, China's bigger, and many would argue better governed. Nonetheless, the problem is real. 
30% maximum high school attainment, 70% unskilled and uneducated, unprecedented for middle income country at that level to rise to higher income. So China knows this. If we know this, of course, the Chinese government knows this. So they've been playing catch up. China did not invest in its people in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It did not invest broadly in human capital, in education, in, in health, in nutrition. It grew really fast without investing. In fact, in some ways it grew too fast without investing sufficiently in its people. So now is the catch-up phase, right? Deng Xiaoping is considered a great leader, but low-wage uh, manufacturing moving from rural to city right, is no longer an option for China, and now it's about the skills more broadly of their people. So in, since 2002, the Chinese leadership has introduced vocational schools in rural areas and low-income areas. They're not working. The vocational schools have failed. And this is according to studies that the Chinese government itself has carried out. And that's because the local leaders don't care about their populations. They're just checking the box. Did you open up a vocational school? Check. Did you admit a certain percentage of students? Check. But then when they did studies of what the students were learning, they discovered they were learning nothing. In addition, these are vocational schools for old trades. They're not, for example, math, IT, and many of the other skills you would need in a new economy, a knowledge economy, a higher value added economy. So, so far, recognition of the problem, but a failed solution to the problem when they don't have much time to catch up for the lack of investment in human capital. Now, it goes beyond education, of course, they have low quality diets. They have untreated health issues, anemia, intestinal worms. There are 800 million rural people approximately, and, and the majority of Chinese children live there. And they're not part of the Chinese economy that we know that's booming, integrated into the rest of the world, innovating, creating, producing IT. And so, this is where China might hit the wall. Once again, China could be an exception. They could defy the laws of gravity. They have done this before without secure property rights, without rule of law. They've done extremely well. So it would be foolish for institutional investors to buy the middle income trap argument. Instead, I'm suggesting we look at it very closely and we consider it going forward. Finally, what Roselle says, this is my conclusion, he says his argument is that a failing China could single-handedly shift the course of the economic future for us all. Because China is such a big driver of growth, if we lose China as a driver of growth, we lose global prosperity. Here I think I disagree with him. I think there are other ways to capture growth in Asia which are not China only, and those include predominantly Southeast Asia, the Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia, and spread out from there. 
where you have higher levels of education and investment in human capital and the potential to jump towards from middle income to high income, the way that Taiwan and South Korea and before them Japan uh, and, and Singapore has already done. And so in the end, it might well be that China doesn't continue on its current trajectory, but that for portfolio managers, there are alternatives to capture Asian growth. Uh, thank you, Colin. Excellent. Thank you. thank you, Stephen. And uh, you've certainly painted a, uh, a, a very clear and uh, deep picture. We're going to uh, talk with five investors in a moment uh, with their questions. Uh, if you've just tuned in, you're watching Professor Stephen Cochran, and we're talking about whether China is a growing influence or a threat or an opportunity or all of that. Uh, a book has just been referenced, uh, which has been recommended by Professor Cochran. I'm holding that book up for you now. Uh, Invisible China by Scott Rosell and Natalie Hell. How the urban-rural divide threatens China's rise if you're interested in going and collecting that. I'm going to go straight to a video question, uh, which is from Jay Willoughby. Jay uh, is the Chief Investment Officer of TIFF in the United States. Thanks, Professor Cotton. I have a question. If China and the US essentially split apart economically, but peacefully, will the world economy become a multipolar economy? And if so, will the diversification provided by investing in Chinese stocks be more valuable than it is today or less? Yeah, Jay, that's, that's really the, the question I was hitting at. And so the answer is, you could be right. It could well be that the decoupling of the American and Chinese economy, of course, which has gone very far and could go farther, is actually not necessarily a threat to portfolios. In other words, it could, we are already seeing supply chains moving out of China and we're already seeing many firms relocate, uh, not necessarily because they want to leave China, but because they're hedging. However, some are leaving China because of the wage problem, wages are rising. And so this is where we see Vietnam as one of the great growth opportunities going forward. But all of those countries in Southeast Asia are connected to China. So in fact, decoupling of America and China doesn't necessarily decouple from China for investors. Because when you're in Indonesia, when you're in Vietnam, as just two examples, you also benefit from Chinese demand for the products in those countries as well. And so I think less hysteria and more sobriety, less sentimentality here, uh, we can find our way capturing Asian growth, even if relations between the U.S. and China increase in terms of friction and decrease in terms of connectivity. Thanks very much. And we'll go to our next question, which is open to uh, all of this methodology, rather, is open to all of you now watching. Uh, if you uh, go to the right-hand side of your screen, you're welcome to submit a live question. Uh, they'll be filtered by our producers and will come through to me here on, on my laptop. Uh, the question that has come in live is from Justin Lowe. Justin is the head of fixed income at Sun Super here in Australia, uh, which is a $66 billion uh, pension plan. Uh, thanks for uh, staying up late, Justin. I realise it's already uh, 
10.20 p.m. here. Uh, the question is, Josh Rogan's book, Chaos Under Heaven, details the CCP's tactics of blackmail, repression and counter-programming within and outside of China's borders. How should Western governments respond to this threat, particularly as markets are intertwined? Professor Cochran. Yes, he's right. Uh, for those investors who take ESG seriously, and more and more investors are taking ESG seriously, uh, China is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Can you justify, on the one hand, talking about ESG metrics in your portfolio, and on the other hand, being deeply exposed to China when the Chinese regime doesn't, it fails the, the G standard in most ESG calculations. And so here I would suggest we're going to see a bifurcation. We're going to see the Wall Street firms understandably wanting to capture Chinese savings. There's enormous wealth available to manage in China because it's a, a growing income country in the cities and those people have high savings rates. And so for any money manager, that's an extremely attractive proposition that you need to be part of. And Amundi International was one of the leaders in getting in the Chinese market and getting a 51% ownership share of a money manager in China. And now we're seeing other firms follow, Goldman and JP Morgan, for example, just to name a few. But there's going to be a stampede on the Wall Street side. But then on... For others, it's much more complicated because if you sell T-shirts, you buy cotton from China, or, or you're exposed to the sneaker market, for example, shoes, uh, then you don't, then the ESG is very front and center for you. So portfolio investors are going to be challenged, not just with whether Chinese growth continues, which was the subject that I dealt with, but how to apply ESG metrics to their exposure to China. Now that we have index fund exposure to China, which is growing, in some ways the problem is only deepening. And so everyone's going to have to look at their portfolio and the money managers that they're engaging to see if they're living up to their ESG promises vis-a-vis -vis China. But once again, that doesn't mean losing growth in Asia. There are other ways to capture Asian growth, potentially. And it's uh, now rather apt that our next investor to bring on for a question uh, is arguably uh, one of the, the best uh, pension plans for ESG in the world, and that's Calsters from California. So I welcome Geraldine Jimenez uh, to now join us. Uh, Geraldine is the Director of Investment Strategy and Risk at Calsters, and I note that you are on uh, our line and getting tested out at 4.30 a.m. your time, and it's now about 5 uh, 24 a.m. your time, Geraldine. So thank you so much for your commitment in being with us all around the world from California so early in the morning. Good morning. Good morning, Colin. What's your question and, uh, for uh, the professor? Go ahead. Well, gosh, um, after hearing you speak, I have actually a lot of questions, but I'll go ahead and just focus on one in particular. Um, I want to reconcile your comment that demographics aren't a problem now that they've moved away from the one-child policy, right? That I understand there's this huge change coming. And then you mentioned that over 70% of the workforce isn't trained. So do they really have enough workers in the future if they haven't trained them and they haven't invested in it? And what does that time horizon look like 
you say there's not a problem, but when would there be a problem? Yes, Geraldine, thank you for, for uh, forcing a clarification on that. So my point was that demography per se is not the challenge because they can make up for the shortfall in a declining population by employing underemployed retirees. This is a problem that we would understand very well here in the U.S. as well, right? We have many people retirement age still working. The problem for China is a shortfall of qualified workers, of skilled workers, of high value added workers. So it's not the numbers alone, it's the quality of the human capital. That's the problem. They don't have enough qualified workers for a knowledge economy, not even close. They're so far behind. They're behind everyone in this regard. Once again, the lowest level of education attainment for middle income countries today. So your point is well taken. They have enough people potentially if they tap retirees, but they don't have enough people to do the jobs of the future. And so the catch up that they're involved in now is a catch up of hundreds of millions of people that they have to bring into a knowledge economy or potentially hit a growth wall. Now, once again, they could defy gravity. They could have a high value added economy in the cities and in the coastal areas and be a high income country there and then be a low income country or a low middle income country in much of the rest of the interior part of the, of the population. And so they could be a bifurcated economy. But what we see in those cases, as we saw in Mexico, is they run out of skilled, highly skilled workers and investment tapers off. They can't grow anymore. And the growth hits a wall. So will, will that happen to China? None of us know, and I certainly don't know. But is that something we should watch? Yes. Not only watch, but prepare for by positioning our portfolio for the scenario should that happen. So, Geraldine, I'm um, giving you up so early. I'd love you to ask your next priority uh, question. And also, uh, if you could frame uh, the conversation we were just having a moment ago around ESG. Calstas is, is, is a global leader in ESG. How does that figure into your deployment of capital into China? Um, yes. Can you hear me? I think you're frozen. Yep. Okay. Um, it's a great question. We recently just um, had a discussion with our board over the last year regarding China, and definitely the G is, uh, as the professor noted, was a concern to our board. Um, as you know, we also have, or maybe you don't know, there was some federal legislation where they're talking about pension plans not being able to invest in some Chinese companies. So we definitely are aware, feel a lot of pressure, yet we agree with the statement yesterday that you need to diversify your portfolio east versus west to avoid some of the interest rate risk that we all think is coming. Um, so I was very interested in your comment on how to get exposure outside of China um, and then as an external investor. So, but what is your what are your thoughts, Professor, about the transparency? Do we really understand, especially with companies with government-owned enterprise being a major owner? Um, can we feel confident in the information we get on Chinese companies and trying to manage the G and the governance? 
Yes, Geraldine, we don't want to paint China with a single brush. China is enormous, complex. There are many companies which do very well on the G, even though they, they're uh, located predominantly in a country where the government itself doesn't do well on the G. But the companies do well on ESG, for example. And so institutional investors will have to make a choice, right? Whatever the federal law might or might not be, you have to make a choice. Is the G the Chinese government or is the G the companies that we're investing in, which could be better behaved than some Western companies in this regard, right? So those are the, we have to walk fine lines here. It's not an either or, cut and dry, black and white. There are significant challenges no question, but running away because uh, China commits genocide in Xinjiang potentially punishes all of those uh, Chinese people and workers, as well as your own retirees, who might benefit from well-performing ESG companies inside China that are doing the right thing. So one has to, I think, be a little bit more micro rather than only macro in making the decisions, but it's clearly no longer business as usual where you can ignore uh, the ESG as your, as, as your pension fund is showing. Thank you. Well, Geraldine, thank you so much for joining us uh, from Calsters this morning, uh, your morning, and uh, please stay watching the rest of the program. I'm going to invite uh, two other investors to join us now. We'll see you next time. Thank you. And now I'd like to welcome uh, two different, uh, two different uh, continents, and that will be uh, Tony Bricardo, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Barclays Bank Pension Fund in the United Kingdom, and Olivier Rousseau, who is the Executive Director of FRR from France, the Sovereign Fund of France. Both gentlemen known very well to Professor Cochran. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Good morning. I'm not sure we are from two different continents. I know the channel got much larger recently, but it's still, I would hope, the same continent, the UK and us, right? Uh, Sorry. Perceptions are changing, Olivier. I've just been stuck in Australia for so long now, I forgot that you were quite the same continent. I apologise. <laughs> um, so so uh, we're going to, I'll start with you, Tony. Um, I know this, uh, you've both got a bunch of controversial uh, counter arguments and, and, and questions for Professor Cochran. So let's dive straight in. Tony, what are your thoughts on uh, what Professor Cochran has spoken about this morning? Well, no, well, first of all, thank you very much for, 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 for that. And it was extremely to the point. I suppose what, what, one of the points is that most of us on the call, those trillions of dollars you mentioned, are already invested in some way, shape or form in China. So we're dealing with a, you know, a live and um, you know, ever-changing situation already. From our perspective, um, you know, we, we, our investments in China to date have been primarily private markets transactions, so, and particularly venture capital. So I guess when, when California traveled to China maybe 15 years ago, with the the, uh, the large you know venture capital firms starting to do business out there, I guess we travelled along with them, and, and our experience has been as you would expect. It's been very positive. There's been a, an ex to, to an extent, and one of the points that's been raised, you know, we're investing our money alongside their money. So there's a, a degree of sort of skin in the game um, that that 
felt right at that point in terms of committing capital. But but I suppose the the question going forward is, um, you know, China and its world view of itself um, demands that it has to make its markets more accessible. And and we as investors have a degree of um, negotiating power, if you like, even if it's at the margin, in terms of what the terms of our, you know, accessing or providing capital to China is. Um, and you can we can see, you know, the integration of ESG and everything else, that will take it, that will play into this very importantly as well. But my question is, given that we, we've also noticed a hardening of the narrative in America and other places politically across parties around China, you know, what is the, what is the additional risk of Western policymakers actually intervening in terms of, of, of our ability to finance not so much venture, but longer term type capital projects in, um, in China, because that's where the big money is going to move into these more infrastructural type things. Yes, Tony, spot on, of course, on venture. A venture has been an enormous success story for the most part in China. And now there are many competing Chinese firms in the venture space that are doing quite well. And there are many Chinese companies coming out of that. And so uh, for, for institutional investors to give that up, as it were, uh, would be a big ask. The question, however, is, and is Western policy interacting with Chinese government policy? And so Western policy is about not supporting the Chinese repression and the Chinese military. And so to the extent that the Chinese government differentiates better between its repressive forces and its military and the investment space, it makes it a lot easier for people in the West to navigate this. To the extent that the Chinese government conflates the military security realm with investment, it makes it much harder for Barclays or CalSTRS or anybody to navigate this space. Right now, one could imagine an outcome where Western governments, in getting, quote, harder on China, try to be targeting rather than broad brush. But you can only target if it's clear what's in and what's out of the categories you're targeting. So what the Chinese regime is doing now is it's making it more ambiguous, more difficult, more conflation to differentiate military security. So institutional investors should be urging not just targeting of Western policy instead of broad brush of Western policy. That's important. Less broad brush, more targeting. Okay, if telecom is strategic, maybe not everything is strategic, right? If Huawei is strategic, maybe some other things are not. But then you need to advocate with your Chinese partners for greater differentiation on their side of the military security realm. That would be the kind of Goldilocks solution just right. If instead we get the opposite solution, where we get China conflating more and or we get Western policymakers less targeting and more broad brush, then you're going to have almost no space to navigate. 
Okay, so Olivia, I know uh, you have some controversial points of view here. Uh, we expect that from a Frenchman. Uh, and I know that one of those is that you think Professor Colkin perhaps has an American lens in uh, what he's presented this morning. Over to you. No, actually, I think I have to eat some humble pie, humble pie just now, because I, my, my initial thinking uh, was um, Professor Kotkin is uh, very harsh with the uh, level of education achievements of the Chinese. Um, maybe uh, we are victims of the uh, propaganda, but in a way, you know, we think of uh, Tsinghua making big progresses in the rankings of uh, Chinese universities. Um, we, we have the perception that there are millions and millions of engineers, very high quality engineers, coming to the market and populating the big tech uh, companies in China. So maybe my mistake here is a matter of proportion. Uh, the top of the uh, bunch is of excellent uh, Western quality, and maybe the ranks and files are much uh, worse than, say, the typical Western perception would be. And maybe that's a different, uh, my, my, the difference I had with what um, Stephen just said about uh, the lack of engineers uh, in China. Well, if that's the case, um, my point is not really valid, but I am extremely surprised. And then that drives me uh, into another territory, which is, it seems, if that is the case, there has been two enormous strategic mistakes made by the Chinese leadership. The first one, and uh, Professor Kotkin hinted at it, is demography. Well, it was very clear years and years ago that the Chinese demographies were uh, weakening massively. And having uh, abandoned officially the one-child policy only like, what, four years ago? It's mad. Uh, the dynamics of the Chinese demography is extremely poor today. And as we know, a recent uh, uh, census is, uh, say, questionable from the start when they say they have 1.4 billion people. But when you aggregate the generations under the age of 14, you don't get the numbers right. So, so they have been cheating with the numbers. So, so the Olivia, do you, question, have, do, you have a, do you have a question? Yeah, directed question for yes, uh, Professor Kogan. Why could they make such a mistake? And on education, why did they invest so much in uh, potentially useless infrastructure and not enough in education? They had the resources to invest. So as quick as you can, Professor Cockham, we've only got a few minutes left and several more questions. Olivier is right. There were some policy mistakes. But let's remember, China grew much faster than it anticipated. We were shocked by Chinese, the speed of Chinese success. But so was the Chinese leadership shocked by the speed of their success. They thought they had more time. And so the reason they invested in infrastructure rather than education was because it was much easier. Right? It was much, much easier to throw money at building things and employing people that way, employing large numbers of unskilled people uh, to build bridges or airports or tunnels or apartment buildings that are empty now than it was to get them to learn math and IT because you need teachers for education. You don't only need students, you need teachers. So Olivier, your point 
about having uh, a huge number of engineers is correct. 12.5% is college educated and there are educate there's education beyond college for the Chinese. And 12.5% of 1.3 billion is a big number of educated people. The problem is that that's it's a narrow base, a very narrow base to build a high value added economy. And so when we go to the great universities in China, we're impressed and rightfully so. But then when Scott Roselle goes outside the cities and into the rest of China, he sees an undernourished, anemic, uh, no eyeglasses, no education population, which is even bigger than the population that we see on our travels. So there were big policy mistakes and they don't have much time to correct. So really quick again, if you can, uh, Professor Cochran, what does this all mean to geopolitics more broadly, if you're correct? And what does this mean in terms of investment opportunities to other Asian countries, not China? Some people are arguing that China has become more aggressive internationally, not because it feels more confident domestically, but because it feels under pressure domestically. So that in some ways, the domestic tensions can be expressed in external aggressiveness. I'm not saying that we know this for sure. I'm saying that people are arguing this. They're making a connection between difficulties in the domestic trajectory, awareness that they might be hitting a wall, awareness that the investment in infrastructure that they no longer need on that scale is, is not working as a growth strategy, and that their alternatives are much more difficult. And so nationalism and aggression abroad potentially could be the avenue they pursue to make up for these domestic problems. We don't know that that's the case. The regime is not transparent. We can't see inside the decision-making box there. And moreover, the aggressiveness abroad may also not continue. We argued that it's possible the trajectory of domestic economic dynamism might not continue, but external behavior could also change based upon other factors in China, as well as what Tony was suggesting, policy outside of China. A question from uh, online that's coming from a live uh, audience member, Anna Wickert, who's uh, head of equities in Melbourne at Seabus Super. Should we as investors become more concerned about the VIE structure, given the crackdown by Chinese government on Chinese tech companies? We've got 30 seconds Chinese, left. Chinese tech companies watched the uh, aggrandizement of Western tech companies and said, this is not going to happen to us. We're not going to have private companies controlling the public sphere. And so in strategic industries like control of the public sphere, you can expect that the Chinese Communist Party is going to get harder and harder and harder. We're seeing this now in digital currency as well. We're going to see it in various other realms. Anything that the Chinese communists perceive to be a threat over the long term to their power to their monopoly of power will come under either greater scrutiny or greater control. And so for investors, that's something that already now you have to be making decisions on.
Tony, I realise that uh, we've, we're out of the time, but you've only got one question. So do you have a quick further final question and or make, want to make a comment about uh, your, your, uh, your pension plan's view of China? Yeah, no, well, thank you. As, as I mentioned, you know, we've been invested there um, for a number of years, so, so clearly thinking of the future. But my question is more of a kind of risk management question. Um, you know, over recent years, a lot of things, scenarios have cropped up um, that we've all had to work with COVID being, being the most recent one, even 24 months ago, that was, that was only a developing theme. My question is, what actions, what, would have, what, would, what actions might China take that would mean that we as Western investors would be bound to pick sides? You know, it could be quite an extreme event, but you know, what, what would have to happen for for there to be not just um, sort of moral suasion, but but intervention to say, you know, you guys shouldn't be investing there. And Stephen, uh, just well, as, as you make your uh, closing comments, unfortunately, we're over time. Can you also uh, wrap into your answer that uh, you made comments that uh, China's currently buying nuclear power ability from, from the Russians and whether that creates a new risk uh, for the West? So, Tony, we're already in the world that you described. We're already invested in China in a big way, and China is already doing things that are compelling us to make a choice. The Europeans tried to cut an investment deal with China, a trade deal, uh, just before Trump left and before Biden came in, and they rushed it through, and it looked like they were successful, but the Chinese wouldn't allow the Europeans to appease them. The Chinese acted aggressively and have made ratification of the European trade agreement with China now under question. And so much worse could happen. We just saw Belarus force a plane to land and it took hostages off the plane. Could China conceivably do something like that? We hope not. But they have the capabilities, they have the power, right? And if they feel that they must do that to preserve their regime, and to preserve other goals that they have, then of course they're fully capable of that. And so escalation is not out of the question. Having said that, however, having said that, we can also be in dialogue with China to talk about these red lines and to talk about behavior that would push us to make choices that we don't want to make. And, and, and the Chinese are very smart and very capable. And so they're capable of understanding their own interests here and making choices that are not always detrimental in, in the ways that your pension fund would be able to continue investing there. But that's up to them, not just up to us. We cannot control their behavior. You know, uh, Colin, I, I think we're out of time, but the, the key takeaway point here for everybody is that the China story is not a simple black and white story. It's a multi-dimensional, multi-sided story. And we have to avoid anything which is broad brush. And we have to avoid anything which puts us all in a worse position. And so we need to take seriously the challenge, but we also need to be careful not to act precipitously. We went into China naively, in my view. We didn't understand what we were doing. 
We didn't understand who China is and what type of government they have. But now we don't want to make the opposite mistake of going completely into the opposite side now and, and saying, you know, we had illusions and now we're smarter and now we know what we're dealing with. In fact, we still don't know. Our education on China still has some ways to go. But if you read the Scott, uh, you read the Nicholas Lardy book and you read the Scott Rosell book and you have an internal debate in your organization about which one of them is right and why, I think it would be very helpful to advance your ability to understand where China is and might be going. As always, Professor Cochran, an absolute thrill to, uh, to have you join us. Thank you for taking the time from New York uh, today. Olivia from Paris and Tony from London, great to see your smiling faces. Thanks for also being part of uh, today's Fiduciary Investor Symposium. Please keep watching and we must leave it there. Take care and see you soon. Bye-bye.